I have friends who are writers who can only write a novel if it's minutely planned out in advance and they know what's going to happen in every chapter. And I've never been that kind of a writer. Not that my process is entirely kind of open-ended or chaotic. What I generally do when I write a novel is I, 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 like, I need to know where I'm starting and I need to know how the story will end. And usually I'll have a few key points on the way that I know the story has to move towards and hit certain beats at certain times. But otherwise I leave it to my imagination to see how, how things come out of the first draft. Hi, this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. We have Arthur C. Clarke Award-nominated writer Adam Roberts, and he has teamed up with a, a really good illustrator, and I'm going to try to pronounce his name, Francois Choutien. Maybe I'm close, but essentially they've created... I, 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 hate, to, I hate to interrupt you, Tony. No, um, go ahead. I, I think it's Francois Coitin. I only say that because I couldn't pronounce his name either when I first I got to go across <laughs> to Paris and meet him and talk about the project and he schooled me in the pronunciation of his name, Scoiton. All right, so I stand corrected by Adam Roberts and it's Francois Scoiton. And <laughs> they have they have uh, collaborated on an interesting book. It's called The Compelled. And just to let everybody know what the story is about before we get into our conversation, it's apparently people have been literally compelled to take objects and then take them to move them literally to other places. And they begin to form like unusual monolithic structures. And apparently with some kind of technology and they could be everyday, everyday things. The description says a butter knife. And then also like a turbine of an experimental jet engine of a mysterious aircraft leftover from the days of World War II. There is more sci-fi talk, so stay tuned. First question has to be, uh, what led you to this story? Well, the story, the, the idea that you've just uh, described, that you've just summarized there, came to me because John Schoenfelder, who's, who's set up Neotext, pitched the idea to me. He said, here's, here's an idea for a story. Why don't you take it? You can take it in any direction you want to take it in. You can explain it however you like, but this, this would be the premise. And it was John who put me together with, with Francois, the, the illustrator you were mentioning. Mm -hmm. And it was those two things, I think, that, that sold it to me. One was I thought it was a really cool idea for a story, and it, it, it sparked my imagination. But the other was just the chance to work with Francois, because I've admired his art for a very long time. I don't know how well known he is in the UK or in the US, but on the continent in Europe, he's a, a superstar of the, of the graphic novel. He's got a very distinctive, kind of clear style, slightly sort of edged with surrealism, with a beautiful kind of geometric, wonderful, almost sublime vibe to it. And it was just an absolute pleasure working with him. Oh, great, great. So how did this work? Did you write the story first and then... You both talked about what to illustrate uh, from the story, that kind of thing. Yeah, it was an interesting, it was a new process for me, not one I'd done before. And I have written books before that have been illustrated. I, I wrote a book called 20 Trillion Leagues Under the Sea that was yeah. illustrated by the Canadian, Canadian illustrator Mahendra Singh, another very gifted illustrator. But in that case, I wrote the whole book. 
and I sent it to Mahendra, and he then picked out the bits he liked to illustrate. With this project, it was slightly different, because before I'd written it, uh, John and Neotext arranged for me to, to take the train to, to Paris, and I got to go and hang out with Francois in his, I have to say, beautiful Montparnasse apartment, mm. and we just chatted about, about the project. So he was able to, to say, well, this is the kind of thing I, I really, I'm really interested in, in drawing. Um, how can we work the story around so that these kinds of shapes and structures become part of it? And that was, you know, that was a pleasure. I mean, it, I'm still enough of a rube to, to find myself rocking up kind of late morning in Paris in the sunshine. Mm. and wandering past the cafes and thinking this is the life this is how you want to to be living rather than in my my cramped london suburb <laughs> so I, I and actually i went a couple of times across to paris and hung out with with francois a couple of times oh it's nice i've actually many many years ago i've stayed in that area of paris and loved it and even took a mm. train from the station there to barcelona many years ago wow. and it, right yeah i totally I, wonder, uh, I mean i wonder how much it's changed it seemed uh, it seems like a, a, it's a much more elegant city, Paris, than, yes. than a lot of big conurbations. Well, I, I would also say, uh, when I first arrived, the first time I visited, and they were very friendly, and, and Francois was a lovely guy, and he was very hospitable and very welcoming. And his partner stayed with us because she speaks a bit of English, and he doesn't really. Ah. Now, I, I, I learned to speak French in an ordinary state school, so I can speak French but not very well. I can speak French like an Englishman, which is not <laughs> exactly a recommendation. So that was okay. So I was answering a bit in English and a bit in French, but halfway through, she decided, well, this guy can speak French, and she went off to attend to her own business. And as the conversation went on, particularly after we'd had a glass of wine, mm -hmm. Francois became just much more, he spoke much more rapidly, much more idiomatically, and oh. I started to kind of lose <laughs> Sense what he was saying. There's only so many times you can ask a man. I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. Could you repeat it? Yeah. So I ended up kind of smiling and nodding. It was all part of the process of us going past merely rational discourse to try and get at the heart of the the project. Mm. It, I mean, it didn't seem to harm the finished product because I think the illustrations are, are magnificent. I really, I mean, obviously, about you'd expect me to say so, but I really do think there's something special. Oh, cool, cool. I was in Paris a few years ago, and yeah, it's gotten more modern, but actually been a long time between my trips to London, and I was just blown away by London, how much more modern it is, and uh, it's just incredible. So it's, it's grown a lot since I, I've been there, uh, for the better, I will say. So, um, yeah, it's cool. I, I grew up in London. I'm, yeah. I'm 55, so I'm mm -hmm. a middle-aged man. Yeah, so I the London. I I remember from when I used to go to school. I used to walk to school mm. past the derelict lots, um, lots of damage from the Second World War that it took decades to start to wow to yeah. get on top of that. And then in the eighties and nineties, the entire city was remade, and now it's mm -hmm. an entirely new thing. I, I barely recognise it. Yeah, I'm I'm actually a little older. I'm sixty five, and I've been going in and I was I, at one time I almost took weekly trips to. Uh, to London and uh, it was had some of the best times and even though I'm Cuban my brother is a big Anglophile and loves right. going to London and has memorized so many pubs if if I go back I right. want to take him because he knows yeah, where yeah. the pubs are were you coming for work or just for pleasure 
It was at first work, but the last time I was there was for total pleasure. My wife was actually working, uh, you know, outside the city uh, in the business district that looks pretty modern. Uh, yeah. Something Wharf, I forget the name of it. But Canary uh, Wharf. Canary Wharf, yeah. Fantastic area. Really is amazing. So anyway, uh, we, uh, I, I actually took the uh, underground in to meet my brother in, in London proper, and uh, we had lunch at a pub and just kind of walked around, ended having um, some, uh, some beers at uh, a pub that, uh, that Dickens had a little corner uh, named in his honor, and apparently <laughs> that was very commonplace for Mr. Dickens, so that's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. fine. Wonderful city. It's, it, it is one of my favorites in Europe, definitely. It, it sounds like a very interesting process to, uh, you know, to, to, to do it this way. Um, d- when you were crafting the story, uh, since you had the drawings to kind of guide you along the way, did you still outline it first? Uh, or did you find yourself, did he always come up with something new, for example, to show you that might have altered the trajectory of the story? It, it was a little of, of both. I mean, I, I know that I have friends who are writers who can only write a novel if it's minutely planned out in advance and they know what's going to happen in every chapter. And I've never been that kind of a writer. Not that my process is entirely kind of open-ended or chaotic. What I generally do when I write a novel is I, 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 like, I need to know where I'm starting and I need to know how the story will end. And usually I'll have a few key points on the way that I know the story has to move towards and hit certain beats at certain times. But otherwise I leave it to my imagination to see how, how things come out of the first draft. Mm-hmm. Um, and that wasn't the best way to, to work on a project like this. If I, a project like this, if I'm honest, because Francois needed to know, you know what he was supposed to be illustrating. And sometimes he would just draw something in this world and it would be such a, this world where people have been you know, dismantling the regular paraphernalia of existence and reassembling it in all sorts of strange and alien ways. Mm-hmm. And he would let his imagination just run away with him and he'd do a, a, an illustration of this or that. And sometimes, again, that would feed back into the story process. There's an extra element here, which, of course, you've got to remember that because he, he doesn't read English. Right. Or everything I wrote had to be translated into French. Uh-huh, that's right. Not by me, not by me, by someone that Neotext hired. Uh, so it could be sent on to him so he could see what was, what was happening. Mm. Um, so it could have been quite, quite difficult to, to negotiate, but actually it went very smoothly. And I'm really pleased with the result. Again, you'd expect me to say that, but it, it happens, to be, happens to be true. Any of his drawings surprise you? Oh, yeah. No, that, that's, I think that's one of the things I love about him as an artist. I think all, all his drawings contain something that is surprising. And even if you, because you, he's, he's very good on, on both rendering the large scale of something, but also giving lots of really powerful, eloquent little details. So the longer you look at one of his pictures, the more leaps out. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it, was, it was wonderful working with him. And I do think that's one of the things that Neotex has in its favor. I think, I wonder if that's going to be the, the next big thing, that there's a kind of halfway house between the regular novel, where all you get is a piece of art on the cover, mm-hmm. and the graphic novel or the comic, which is art all the way through. 
Yeah. Some yeah. kind of combination of the two where you get this lavishly illustrated with lots and lots of illustrations, but you're still reading a, a regular book. Um, and I think it could be a, it's an interesting form. They used to do that, didn't they, back in the 19th century? Oh, yeah. Lavishly illustrated books, but it seems to have fallen out of favour, I think, now. Very That's expensive, I suppose, to, to make these books if you're going to make them as physical objects. Yeah, I mean, that's the way I grew up, was reading books that had illustrations. That's how you got kids to pay attention to reading in those days. So um, yeah. it's that it's coming back, I think, is awesome. And for adults, it's uh, even uh, even better. Obviously, between the two of us, you know what the compulsion, the reason for the compulsion is. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's for us to discover. Um did that change at all from your writing or right from the back? Did you know it was going to be what it turned out to be? I think I, I think I didn't know. I mean, I, it, it's, it's, if you, if you were to, I mean, I, one of the things I do is I teach creative writing at the university of London. So you might set this as an exercise for creative writing students or anyone who is interested in becoming a writer. You might say, take this premise. How would you develop it? Part of that is, how would you explain what's going on? And because it's science fiction, it's going to be one of a, a number of different kinds of explanation. It might be aliens. It might be people in the future um, communicating backwards through time. It might be perhaps people in the deep past. It will be something outside the usual explanations that people will come up with i mean a usual explanation might be it could be a mass hysteria or some i don't know secret government program or something like that but i think i always knew it was going to be proper science fiction it was going to be something to do with time travel or something to do with aliens so i know you're right i'm kind of constrained because i don't want to say too much because i right. think the, the twist but it, it i knew it when i sat down to work on it i was thinking well what would be an interesting spin on these venerable old science fiction tropes and, and forms. And that's what I was, that's what I kind of came up with and that had to fit it into the, to the structure I was, I was working on. Yeah. Very cool. So how long did it, everything uh, take? So, well, one thing I, um, the, the, the writing took, I suppose, three, maybe four months to get it all finished. Mm -hmm. The illustrations were happening. Francois was working on the illustrations all the way through that, but he continued producing illustrations after that. And the the other thing that was new to me about this process, I have to say, was um, I mean I've published a lot of novels. I published twenty twenty one novels in the UK, and I'm used to dealing with publishers. And publishers will take your manuscript and they will give it to an editor and the editor will give you feedback and say, well, maybe you could change this or change that. And I'm happy to take edits. That's part of the, I'm not a prima donna. That's fine. John comes out of a, a movie background. He's a movie producer as well as setting up this press. And it's different in the movies. In the movies, it's usual to send a script back, you know, 10 times, 20 times, saying just one more polish, just one more polish. So there's quite a lot of, of editing Thing that went on after I'd submitted the first kind of version of the of the book, which again is fine. Because the purpose of the editing is to make the book a better book. But it was an unusual thing. I wasn't used to it, I suppose. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that's part of, again, that crossover between the world of movies and the yeah. world of old school publishing is, is very 21st century now. Most people get their stories in the first instance from movies and TV rather than from novels and short stories as they used to do. Sci-Fi Talk returns in a moment. 
Yeah, I have to admit I'm guilty of that. I really am. But then again, it's the nature of what I do. I I have to see a lot of movies and TV, so just the way it works out too. But I mean, also movies are great now. I mean, I yeah. think we're in a kind of golden age of movies. It's amazing the the technical expertise, the brilliance that's brought to bear on making these narratives is extraordinary. Yeah, I'm not you know, I'm not knocking movies. It's just there is a difference between what I do, which is I write books, and books are made out of words. And what movies are, because movies are made out of images and mm-hmm. you know, motion and acting performances and stuff like that. And these, it's difficult to, to combine the two, I think, without losing one or the other. Well, what's the beauty of literature is you can do so much with words and you paint a description and then the reader fills in those blanks with their imagination. Yes, everybody yeah. might interpret it more but i think that's more interactive you see a movie and there's really not much to imagine because somebody's already done that for you it's pretty passive but a movie you kind of have to i mean either a book you have to kind of get into it uh, picture things picture what the character is saying and not only that their facial expressions any gesture they might have so it's more you're more involved and uh, i hope we never lose that no, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's absolutely spot on. Mm-hmm. And they're doing slightly different things, but they're both doing important things. Because the other thing I suppose is true is there are things that movies can do really, really well. They can do, they can make spectacular visual images. They can do action really well. And they can do things like uh, suspense and, and tension and drama very well. But there are things that movies don't do very well. And those things are the kind of interior things. So the only way you can, in a movie, the only way you can really communicate that someone is having thoughts inside their heads is by a voiceover, which is quite a a clunky mechanism. Hmm. They're not good on on interiorization and they're not good on ideas really. Because again, the only way you can have ideas expressed in a movie is having a character explain the idea to someone else. Hmm. That's what books are good at. Books are very good at getting inside people's heads and about exploring ideas. Yeah, I mean, I've seen certain movies where the, you hear the character thinking what they're thinking. Depending on how it's used, it could either work or it can... I've seen it where it actually slows the movie down. And other times, if it's used perfectly, uh, then uh, it could really work. Certainly, a lot of the 50s noir movies made a habit of doing that, and that seemed to work extremely well for that genre. But on the average, it's hard to do the what they're to hear what they're thinking, and usually you have to have something going on. Otherwise, it's just not yeah. that interesting. So it's a uh, and that's it. Then you end up in a situation where it becomes a kind of cliche. You know yes. the character sad because it's raining outside, yes. and you know the character's mood has lightened because the rain clouds have rolled away and sunlight is coming down. And it's not again, it's not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad way of, of dramatizing emotions. It's just not very sophisticated. It doesn't really have nuance. And then you get really very brilliant filmmakers like, I don't know, Christopher Nolan's Inception oh. is a very interesting movie, but it does have kind of half-hour blocks in which characters just explain at one another mm-hmm. so that the audience has enough of a sense of what's actually going on on an idea's level. I'm sounding like I'm, I'm attacking movies. I'm not at all. I, I think yeah. they're a great work, form of art. But I suppose I am kind of arguing the corner a little bit for what I do. It's a small scale thing, but there are, there are things that a novel can do that a, a film can't, I think. 
I agree. And uh, they're both great mediums to enjoy entertainment and maybe stimulate the old gray matter, as they say. All right. Why don't we take a short break? We're talking to Adam Roberts about his latest, which is The Compelled. And we will be right back. Hey, this is Jens Anderson, creative director on DC Universe Online. You're listening to Sci-Fi Talk. Back on Sci-Fi Talk with uh, Arthur C. Clarke nominated writer Adam Roberts talking about The Compelled. Francois drew these amazing pictures. Was there any, to kind of speak in film terms, was there any that kind of were left on the cutting room floor because it didn't, it wasn't enough room kind of thing? I, I think there were, and there were some because the story did evolve as mm-hmm. it went through, you know, as I finished writing it and as it went through edits and we took episodes out and put, I wrote new episodes. And that's, again, it's, as, as we were saying before the break, the process of how a, a novel comes to be is twofold. First, the writer writes it and then it is edited. It is worked on to make it the best it can be. And I think in that second process, some of the illustrations that Francois had done were became kind of less specifically relevant. Uh, I'm not quite sure what's going on with that, actually. I know I've, I've seen the, the book is coming out in two halves, and I've seen the first half, and the illustrations there kind of work in the way that they're integrated. But mm. it's, I don't know, you can imagine there'd be, you, know, you wouldn't throw them away extra illustrations by Francois Scoyton. You do something with them. Yeah, I was saying. Or something like that. I'm not sure. You're also a contributor to the SF Encyclopedia. So what was that working on that project like? Well, I, so I, I, I've just come at this in a slightly roundabout way and, and stop me if I'm just rambling in a kind of boring Englishman way. I, I don't know any, I don't know many writers who can make a living just from writing yeah. in the present climate. So most of us have day jobs. And my day job is I work for the University of London. I work for Royal Holloway, which is one of the colleges at the University of London, and I teach literature and creative writing. So that means I also have to do literary criticism and publish scholarly articles and things like that, which is fine. I enjoy doing that. Um, as part of that, I um, because I love science fiction, I've written about science fiction as well as writing actual science fiction. So I wrote a history of science fiction that was published by Polgrave, for instance. And because I also review and I write critical essays, I got to know John Clute, who's the editor of the, the encyclopedia. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Oh, do you know John? John? You- I, I have met John, yes, I, at, at a convention years ago, yes. Right. Yeah, well, he's a lovely man, and he's, he knows yes. more about science fiction than anyone else um, I've ever met. Um, <clears throat> and I, I think I pointed out to him that by this stage, I think they were setting up for the third edition of the encyclopedia, and every time they do a new edition, it gets more and more enormous because science fiction is being produced all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were no entries on science fiction music. Uh, and I said, well, there's a lot of pop and rock and prog music and you know, electronica that is basically science fiction. Shouldn't you have entries on, on those? And he said, oh, yeah, no, absolutely. And so I ended up writing, I think, about 100 entries, a lot of them not very long, but trying to cover all the big names in, in recent music that have explored science fiction. So David Bowie, let's say, or oh, yeah. synthesizer music or prog rock or... Um, there's a lot of kind of interesting going out to the, to the present age, El Mayan, and, and um, there's a lot of crossover. Oh yeah, yeah. 
So mostly, I think that's for the encyclopedia. I think that's mostly what I did. I did all the kind of music entries. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've I actually next year I'm launching a uh, a podcast that's going to be featuring interviews with my uh, with the composers I've talked to throughout the years and to oh. kind of give them their due. I guess for me, I got my first taste of it really with Bernard Herrmann during the Harryhausen films. And then, of course, yeah, yeah. Citizen Kane. Uh, and then, obviously, I moved on to John Williams. And, uh, I mean, his score for Superman is still being used, and Star Wars, of course. And so there's a lot of great composers that are out there that are doing phenomenal work. Yeah, uh, yeah and I agree. Uh, I mean, one of the things that interests me about, about film music is, so if you go all the way back to Forbidden Planet, the yes. 19- 50s movie the original score that was commissioned for that used all at the time cutting edge electronic machines and theremins and so on yes and they decided that was too wacky and far out so they commissioned a regular score with kind of orchestral accompaniment by the time you get to you know the 80s and blade runner when vangelis produces this sort of synthesizery you know very evocative again very Kind of still, still familiar sets of the suites of music because they're on a synthesizer because it's all electronic. It, the, the, the sound of the music is kind of science fictional, in, irrespective of anything else. Mm-hmm. And I find that really interesting. Yeah, and it's kind of old-fashioned now a synthesizer. It's not cutting edge anymore, but it still seems to me to have that slightly eerie sci-fi vibe. Well, it's been replaced essentially by computers now that you can you can mm. recreate pretty much any sound you want and even something that sounds orchestral i will say about forbidden planet i like the way they they dressed the music and the credits they called it electronic tonalities and i thought that was a cute way of saying it <laughs> that's <laughs> and, a great phrase isn't it <laughs> it sure is it sure is mm. i'm sure somebody labored hard and long <laughs> for that one but but uh, yeah that's one of my favorite movies you might say it's even a star trek episode it's so close but I think that people are upfront about that, aren't they? When the Star Trek team were putting that show together, they they were trying to do a Forbidden Planet as a weekly TV serial. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I think it definitely influenced uh, a young Gene Roddenberry about ten years or so before uh, Star Trek. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it's it's cool. I'm so glad you did that on on the music because that's such an important part to me. Growing up, hearing some great composers, and there's a lot of them that I talk to that are around now that don't get their due, unfortunately. And they're doing some phenomenal work. Jeff Russo, who's now scoring uh, the Star Trek series, uh, is, is just phenomenal. And, and, and so many, I, we could talk for hours just on that alone. Also, just the, the, one of the things that first made me fall in love with science fiction mm-hmm. was the way it, the best science fiction achieves it, a sense of wonder and makes yes. the kind of hair stand up on the back of your neck and gives you a, just an intimation of the enormous scales of the cosmos and the possibilities. Mm. And the best music can do that as well. That's what, what makes music so special. It's not referential. It's not about anything. It is just itself. It is just its sounds and forms. But it can really move and, and make something happen that lifts you. It's a, it's a, it's a strange and a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you have written quite a few novels. Um, you know, uh, you know, you won, you've won, you've won some awards. Uh, the Arthur C. Clarke Award, I guess, 
That one's kind of eluding you a little bit, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the one that keeps getting away. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very honoured to, to have been nominated for it, oh, shortlisted for sure. it. Because it's just even, I mean, they, they, it sounds like a, a fatuous thing to say, but it is an honour to be nominated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've never won it. I don't know. The, I do know, I know the awards administrator a bit, Tom Hunter, and I do know from him that it has gone from being the kind of award that would attract, you know, 60 or 70 entries. And then the judges would have to find a short list of six and one winner to nowadays when it's the kind of award that gets hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of entries. It just makes it harder. This is why I tell myself it makes it harder for any one book to really stand out. It lowers the odds of making the, the short list but who knows the future is is open perhaps one day i'll win an arthur c clark award a man can dream that's right well fourth time is a charm that's what i say (laughs) (laughs) exactly so Uh, what's after the compelled i'm I'm talking to john at neotext about um maybe doing another book for them um, and i'd be very happy to do that Mm -hmm. i've got a so my regular UK publisher is, is Victor Galanz, who are part of Orion Books, and they publish most of my novels. And I've got a novel coming out from them um, early next year, which is called Purgatory Mount, as in oh, the cool. mountain, of, mountain of purgatory that, you, that Dante wrote his great poem about. And when I say that, I don't think it's going to be available in the States. I think it's just a UK uh-huh. release. Um, but that's, I've, you know, I've written it and that's been edited. And actually just this morning, I got an email from my editor at Glance given with some kind of cover art. It kind of goes back to what we're saying. The, the cover they've designed for, for Purgatory Mount seems to be really lovely. It's really nice. But it nice. is just the one, the one image and it will go on the outside of the book and everything else is just words. Yeah. And having worked with Francois, part of me thinks, oh, now this, wouldn't this book be better if we had two dozen <laughs> beautiful images interleaved all the way through? I don't know. Yeah, I I think it's good to happen. it's good to imagine also <laughs> and put your own visuals to it too. So there's it, I, it, there's another point to that actually, which goes back to something you were saying earlier, Tony, mm-hmm. which is about how how computers make everything easy now. Yes. So I yeah. do know this. I know this from a couple of friends of mine who are writers. They put out books, and fans will produce fan art of their favorite characters or their favorite scenes of an extraordinary quality. They do it on, on computers and on tablets and they'll post it online or they'll send it to the author. And there's a real sense that fans can kind of get engaged now with their favorite text. I mean, it hasn't happened to me, but I'm not as famous as some other writers. And I think the, the communities of fandom that, that gather and conventions and get dressed up as their favorite Star Wars characters and so on are part of the great strength of science fiction. It's one of the reasons science fiction continues to go from strength to strength as it has such a, a large community of, of supporters. Mm, absolutely. And it is a fellowship that is very strong, very diverse. Everyone is welcome into it. I've never seen anybody turned away at no. any kind of fandom function. Uh, just the opposite. I've seen them embraced. It, it's like I've always, I've been saying this lately. I wish the world would learn from this a little bit. <laughs> yeah, because so. uh, it'd be a better place if if everybody uh, if everyone treated each other like they do at science fiction conventions, where uh, there's just love and affection all over. And uh, yeah, there's always some people that 
don't do what they should. But it's very, very few, very few. So it's a cool thing. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Before we go, I do want to ask you about your students. Um, what's the level of enthusiasm for writing, you know, from, from what you've seen in your classes? I would say it's, it's very high. And I think the, one, of the, one of the jobs I have, actually, I mean, we, uh, we are a small creative writing department at Royal Holloway, but a really good one. Again, I should, you expect me to say so, but it's true. And we get many more students applying to us than we can take. Wow. So we end up selecting the best. It's about 40 get in every year. Mm. And they get a lot of personal attention from us. Uh, two of my colleagues write what you could call mainstream or regular fiction. And I'm the, I'm the guy who looks after the kind of science fiction and the fantasy enthusiasts. So I get to work with, with young kids uh, who are already, by, the, by virtue of the fact that they've got in, they've clearly, they are clearly talented. And the main task I have, I think, is apart from doing all the usual teaching things and showing them, talking, walking, walking them through the strategies for making the process better and easier and so on. I think the main challenge I have is a lot of them, this is what we were saying earlier, a lot of them, their imaginations have been shaped and kindled by film and TV. And they sometimes come in thinking, well, I'll write my novel and it will be a bestseller and then it will get bored. But, you know, Steven Spielberg will pick it up and make a huge movie out of it. And I have to say to them, if you want to write a movie, you should write a movie. You should write a screenplay. Because as we were saying earlier, a, a movie is a different thing to a novel. To write a novel as, to the best of your abilities, you need really to be in love with words and how words function. But they're all enthusiastic. They all work really hard and they're all incredibly imaginative. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a tonic spending time with them. Um, That's nice. Yeah. That's real nice. I mean, that you literally could be influencing some future great writers, and that's a noble, that's noble yeah. too. Yeah, that's great. I really want to thank you for being on the podcast. It's been a delightful conversation, and the uh, the book is called "The Compelled with Illustration." So I think uh, people like me who'd like to see that will get more out of it. And uh, it looks like, uh, yep, it's available. Where you think Amazon, the almighty Amazon has it. <laughs> and I'm yeah. sure wherever you get your books, you can get it as well. And uh, it sounds fascinating. I really want to find out what this compulsion is all about. <laughs> Thank you, Tony. It's been an absolute pleasure. And you can also enroll for a free lifetime membership at Sci-Fi Talk Plus with early release episodes, exclusive and uncut episodes. Just click on the link in the show notes. It's free for a lifetime. Now, if you subscribed, you would get weekly a day before the actual release. And it also uncut and commercial free. So there you go. This is Tony Tolado. Thanks for listening.